warning. The program you're about to hear is absolutely filthy and thoroughly disgusting. Furthermore, listening to it will immediately turn you into a bottom. Bottom. But listen, when, when it's messy, it's a problem for everyone in the room. Correct. All ten of them. I'm proud to declare the Ed and Sank show and his ass open to the wind. Ass open to the wind. This is fuckery. <laughs> this is all fuckery. <laughs> fuckery, fuckery, fuckery. Powered by CNR Studios. And now... Give a warm round of applause to my friend and yours, Adam Sank. <laughs> yeah. I feel like... <laughs> How describes me. Welcome to the Adam Sank Show. We are not live. Make it stop. We are not live, but this is a pre- me in the morning. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh God, this is a brand new episode. If you're listening at 11 a.m. Eastern, Saturday, December 10th, in the year 2022, DNRStudios.com and the DNR Cast app. The only places you can ever hear this podcast live and throughout the week that it first airs. If you listen anywhere else, leave us your ratings and reviews. Not that it matters at this point since we're going off the air. On Apple Podcasts or any other audio platform, email me, me, at adamantadamsank.com. Like the Facebook page, get your ass merch at adamsank.com. Remember, if you want to call and uh, tell us how you feel about uh, us going off the air, uh, your favorite memories of this podcast, any final words you want to say to me and to us, then call the ass hotline, 804-TALK-ASS. That's 804-825-5277. We will play those voicemails, even the cunty ones. Uh, when we do our series finale at the end of the year, get vaccinated and boosted. Stand with Ukraine. Our guest today is a legend, and I, I'm not speaking uh, in any kind of hyperbole. His name is Nat Horn. He is a legendary dancer of Broadway and the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. Um, he's the oldest person we've ever had on the ass and one of the most accomplished, and I'm so excited to be talking to him a little later in the hour. But first, it's time to welcome back my once and future podcast co-host. Who knows about the future? It could happen. Um, everyone's favorite frost pig, Ryan Frostig. Hi. Hello, Ryan. Hi, What was it like for you last week being back in the saddle for the first time? Oh my gosh, I was so disoriented. I didn't know if if I would be welcomed back with open arms. I thought, oh, but no. You didn't know how to use a microphone? I didn't know how to use microphones, still didn't know lyrics to, you know, most New songs. York, New York. It's great. It's how it should be. Well, it was lovely having you back. I'm glad we get to have you one more time before we sign off <laughs> for eternity. As and we go on, we'll remember. Sing it, girl. All the times we... Had together. It's so a little vitamin C for you. So for beautiful. Thank you. I can't reach the applause because my back hurts. Oh, by the way, I threw out the wrong. Um, so I'm oh, just, good. You have no idea what's happening. No idea what's Great. happening, which is not you know that often. Just a reminder that Steve will be back for the final three episodes of the Adam Sank Show. Uh, rest assured, I know he's been off for a while. He's fine. Everything's good. He actually has an exciting new job that I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about. But he's going to be working for a very famous person <laughs> and a very sexy person, if I may say. Oh. Um, so we can talk to him next week. But uh, but time to also welcome back the man who's been by my side almost every single week for the last five years, JB Bercy. Hi. Hello, JB. Hi, you. Um, JB. Yes. What's your favorite Christmas song, or do you have one? Oh, okay. <laughs> my favorite Christmas song is "Baby It's Cold Outside." Oh yeah, the date rape song. Yeah, because I, I, I'm that. I feel like that describes me and my whole personality. I'm that little coy bitch who wants to leave, but kind of want to stay and just have a good time. But I have to go because you know responsibilities and home you have life. to be respectable. Yeah, I gotta be respectable. But I want to hang out with this fine man who's saying all the right things. Just I love right that. Things. That's a fun song. Yeah, Ryan. So my favorite holiday song would have to be "Angels We Have Heard." On high. Oh my God, that's mine too. Really? But mine is specifically the Josh the Groban. Low, yeah, that part. Yeah, but it's Josh Groban and Brian McKnight. That mm. their version. I think I played it for you years ago. But it is so sensational. They, the two of them, their voices together. I'm obsessed. That is my favorite traditional carol. It's crazy. Really? That you like the same one? Yeah, that and Little Drummer Boy, which is so beautiful. Yeah, and I think also for me, I would say like the Christmas song. 
Uh, oh, Chestnuts? Yeah. Yeah, Chestnuts is, is it's fantastic. Just, That's like my favorite contemporary, and not that it's contemporary, yeah, but yeah. like within the last hundred years. Um, I love that song. I also love, there's like another pop Christmas song that I love. and I, Oh, Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, mm. always gets me going, always makes me feel things. Also, um, I think we were talking last week about least favorite. Yes. And for Mine me, is the Hippopotamus song. It's Last Christmas. Oh, Last Christmas is garbage. Garbage. And so is Paul McCartney's Simply no, see, I like that one. Nope, nope, one nope, of nope, a Christmas time. I like that one. I hate that song. And I like the Blue Suede Shoes one. I have a Blue Christmas? Not Blue Suede Elvis? Shoes. That's a different No. I'm going to buy these shoes. You know the one? It's, no. It's, everyone thinks it's one of the worst Christmas songs ever. I don't know what that is. I'll send it to you. JB, are you offended that I didn't like the Paul McCartney song? Oh, hey, no, no, no. I was offended about the last Christmas because I was like, oh, not the Christmas song. But I'm like, oh, no, it's this George Christmas. George Michael. This Christmas. And I was like, I love that. Christ- yeah, last this Christmas, Christmas I gave you like, my heart, but the very next day. Enough. It apart. Yeah, I don't like it's it. Awful. I love George Michael. I hate that song. Love George. Well, speaking of pop songs, I read a really interesting nerdy article um, at a website called tedium.co. Not tedium.com, tedium.co, hmm. by uh, a guy named Chris Dallariva. And he uh, is a big music nerd, I guess. And he sat down to analyze the history of Billboard's Hot 100. He listened to every Hot 100 song, that's 1,143 songs, that have been released between 1958 and 2022. Um He did this for years. It took him years to listen to all these songs. And one of the things he noticed is that in the past, most pop songs would take advantage of a key change. Usually in the third verse, the final verse, there'd be a key change, which, um, you know, kind of added drama to the song. It it changes the energy of the song. It usually shifts up a key. Um, And he points to one of Michael Jackson's biggest hits, The Man in the Mirror, as a perfect example of this. There's Mm -hmm. this part towards the end where he sings, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself, then make a change. Right, and he goes to a different key, and there's a gospel choir that comes in. And um, and he, the writer says that part of what makes Michael Jackson's song so special, from Billie Jean to Dirty Diana to Wanna Be Starting Something, is that uh, he sounds kind of frantic, like he's navigating through a labyrinth. But Man in the Mirror is not like that. It's it's very um, comfortable, empowered feeling. Um, and then he goes on to say that in that's not really important to the article. I don't know why I just told you <laughs> that. But but the point is, <laughs> as time went on, artists stopped using key changes, uh, and so you know from basically like 1990 onward. Um, hardly any of those Hot 100 songs have key changes in them. Now, for those of you who are not musical, a key change is basically just shifting a song's key up, either a half step or a whole step. So if a song is in G, uh, G major, then suddenly it shifts to G sharp major um, or to A. And it, it, it means you have to sing everything a little bit higher. And you can hear it in songs like My Girl, uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney mm. Houston, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. But after 1990, key changes happen much less frequently. So he asks, why? What, what caused the change? And basically, he says it's two things. One is hip-hop, because hip-hop uses uh, computers in recording way more than instruments. And when you're composing... Uh, on a, on a computer, mm-hmm. as opposed to with an instrument, then you're no longer composing in a linear way. Mm. You basically create a loop, and then you repeat that loop over and over again. It's much easier and faster. Um, he says in the, in the computer age, the linear style doesn't make much sense. 
and the orchestral score style vertical layout of most digital recording software encourages loop-based writing because the default setting of the software is to display only a few bars horizontally on each screen with several vertically stacked tracks. This is really nerdy inside baseball. But if you think about the way a piano looks, you've got, what, 88 keys in front of you. And so as you're going along and you're writing this song, it, it's very easy to simply shift up a, a half step or a whole step. But on a computer screen, if you're using GarageBand, it's not as easy. It's easy, but it doesn't suggest the, the, the key change does not suggest itself to you the way a piano does. Interesting. <laughs> does anyone care about this besides <laughs> no, me? No, I, well, do. Okay. I so do. So here's my, here's my technical and, and analytic aspect of it. Like, if that's the case, it just sounds like you can build a key change on a computer. It'd just be a little difficult. You absolutely can do it on a computer. Yeah. I mean, I think w one of the things he leaves out is this has just sort of gone out of fashion. Yeah, I think yes. that's the big part of it. I think a lot of artists feel that a key change is cheesy and manipulative now. Yeah. Actually, there, there are some artists, I'm going to say a, mostly black artists, who still do key changes. Kiki Palmer, uh, uh, Jennifer... Hudson. Hudson. Oh my God, I can't believe I almost forgot Jennifer. Hudson. I love a key change. Right. Do, I do love a key change shit, but it is rare to, to see it happening and stuff. And it's not really in our pop music anymore. So. But like well, most things, I'm sure it'll have a comeback. Bring someday. it back, yeah. I yeah. say. Anyway, you can read that article on tedium.co. <laughs> I think one more thing to note, too, especially in pop music, is that I, I've noticed that a lot of pop songs are now under three minutes. Because yes. Those shorter songs are more streamable. But, you know, that was always the case. Oh, really? It, yeah. It, starting in the 1960s, it was almost impossible for a song to be longer than three minutes uh, mm. because radio stations wouldn't play it. Right. Um, but when, I feel like the Beach Boys, when they famously put out Good Vibrations, everyone freaked out because it was like over five minutes long. Yeah. And then Billy Joel, Piano Man, that was like a six-minute track. But, yeah, most, most songs are three minutes and under. I hate that shit. Because some, some songs be bangers, yeah. and they're like two minutes or 30 seconds. Like, Why would you do this to me? I agree. People have such here. short attention spans. Of course, now radio is dead, and it's all about streaming, so that will probably change as well. Sure. Anyway, in far more important news, Queerty asks the question, did Marvel edit out Tanakh Huerta's bulge from yes. Wakanda Forever? Yes. Am I saying his name right? Does anyone know? I think it's Tanakh or Tanoch. No idea. My pronunciation is wrong, so you got it, sis. Here's what Queer T says. It shouldn't be a surprise that the multi-billion dollar Marvel Cinematic Universe relies heavily on CGI to create its heroes, villains, and fantastical worlds. Uh, Wakanda, the technologically advanced African country that's home to Black Panther, is completely fictional. In reality, it's all filmed on a couple of studio lots in Atlanta with a heaping helping of green screen. But with Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which is currently the number one movie in the country, there is a specific bit of CGI trickery that's been vexing fans, and that is what happened to Namor, 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 Namor. Namor's appendage. Yep. Yep. We want to know. As played by Tanakh Huerta, Huerta, the water-dwelling hero sports an eye-catching pair of emerald short shorts. Mm -hmm which are pulled directly from the Namor of the comic strip, gay fans have been thirsting over Huerta and his take on the Submariner, or Submariner, Submariner. ever since uh, the first official look of the movie came out. A still photo came out that showed him in these short shorts, and it l looked like he had this big package. Mm -hmm. But in the film itself, that bulge appears to have been smoothed over, and people have been taking to Twitter screaming things like, give Namor his penis back. Uh, Since she looked flat. Putting up side-by-side -side images of the original screenshot and the one from the movie. Uh, so the question is, did Marvel get wet feet and decide to tone down this water log before Wakanda Forever was screened to millions of fans across the world? Uh, Rolling Stone actually decided to go right to the source and ask Huerta himself. Um... And the journalist, Brian Hatt, asked him, uh, are you okay with this? And Huerta said back, the only thing I can say is the original was the photo on the right, meaning the one from the film. He said, without the bulge, that's the original. I mean, I'm not going to lie to people. Every man in the world, we have fragile masculinity, but not in that issue. I will say the right one is the real one, and the one on the left 
was the one that was doctored. <gasps> so his beautiful green bulge only ever existed in our imaginations. Quirty says, regardless, we're relieved to hear that Huerta has a good sense of humor about it. And considering that the actor seems keen on donning that green Speedo in future Marvel movies, we look forward to seeing a lot more of him on the big screen in the future. More God, bold. he was so hot in that movie. I still haven't seen it. You did. So good. But I love a bulge. I love a bulge. And it's cool that he told the truth. I mean, yeah. that would be me, too. I, wouldn't, I never want people to think I have a big dick and then be disappointed when they see the real thing. Sure. But... It was, she was looking real fat in that movie. I was like, how are these shorts so tight? And I don't see nothing. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Well, you know, JB, a lot of men are growers. Uh, yeah. I can look like an actual woman sometimes <laughs> when I'm wearing tight shorts. But, you know, when I get hard, it, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> Speaking of bulges, the New York Times ran a very – surprising and interesting article a couple weeks ago. It was by a, a writer named Lagaya Michan. And the question, the headline is, how did the eggplant become our default sex symbol? The eggplant um, is the 165th most popular emoji. That's out of about 1,500 that were measured um, in the United States. That's according to the Unicode Consortium. We've talked about this before. This is a nonprofit organization that regulates standards for digital text. Um, just to give you some idea, um, cake is number 25 mm. on the list of emojis. A cup of coffee is number 124. Beer steins are number 140. And clinking champagne flutes are number 155. So those are all more popular than the eggplant. But the eggplant is clearly the most popular one to indicate penis. And this is somewhat surprising when you consider that most eggplants don't look like penises. <laughs> the Thai eggplant is tiny and round. The Anina eggplant hangs straight down like a bell. The Picasso eggplant is a dark teardrop. The bulbous Tango eggplant is white on the shrub, but it turns butter yellow when plucked. There are eggplants that look like oversized grapes, orange softballs, red onions gone goth. More often than not, uh, what is seen in U.S. supermarkets is the Italian eggplant, which is deep purple and fat-bottomed like a wobble doll, and the globe eggplant, which is the same shape but balloons outwards. The point is there are a million different kinds of eggplant, and most of them do not look like penises. But the one that we think of as the dick the emoji. is the emoji is the Japanese eggplant. Mm. Slender and glossy, presented at an upward tilt, mm. a regal baton to be handed off to the next runner with the green cap of its calyx perched perkily on top. This is really well Why written, I, I have on? to tell you. It's oh my goodness. Yes. Um, and then she asks, what about other phallic-like fruits, uh, fruits like bananas? The banana was once a such a challenge to prudish American sensibilities that it, when it was advertised, it, they'd show women eating it with a knife and fork because they didn't want to encourage any woman putting that penis-like thing in her mouth. So the article says, like, why doesn't a banana a I symbol mean, of penis? This also reminds me of, I, I don't know where I heard this from, but why women can't eat bananas in public? <laughs> because there would be some guy who would look at her with such intent and mm -hmm. grossness while she's eating this banana. And be like, yeah, putting your mouth. I was like, damn, sis, it's a banana. But you know, I think with the emoji with the um, eggplant, it's all about the exactly what you just said about it tilting upwards. The curve. It's the curve, and it's like if they. But bananas do that too. Yeah, but the emoji, the banana emoji, I don't think. I actually don't know what the banana. What like I've seen like? penises that look like actual bananas. I've never seen a penis that looks like an eggplant. But like if they turned the eggplant on its side and didn't have it in the direction they had it in. I don't know if people would, you know, use it as the, uh, as the penis symbol. They do. One emoji user interviewed in the article said that it's because the, um, the emoji version of the eggplant shows the fruit half peeled. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's why the banana doesn't work right. as the dick emoji. Cause exactly. it's half peeled. There you go. Um, I, I mean, although and it could look like an uncut that. dick they popping out. They probably did that so that it wouldn't look like a penis. Exactly. Um, the writer ends by saying, there's more fruit in the trees. Expand your emoji lexicon. 
Um, the criminally underused mango emoji is number 542 on that list of most frequently used emojis. The blushing and um, sticky sweet buttery earth nipple-tipped chestnut is number 799. Uh might there be mischief in the kiwi, danger in the tangerine? What lurks under those ruffles of bok choy? So now I'm a, looking at the emojis like, hmm, <laughs> what else? I feel like uh, the peach emoji for ass is easily as popular as the Absolutely. eggplant, if not more so. I thought they were going to change the um, peach emoji to make it look less buttocks-like. I think the article mentions that they did at one point and people complained. And so they <laughs> they put it back to looking like an ass again. <laughs> well, speaking of big penis, former yes. SNL cast member Jay Farrow has confirmed that Pete Davidson has a big dick and claims that he and Pete are dick twins. What? Wait, was I supposed to play the thingy for this? What, the horse? No, the cocktails and cock talk story. Oh, sorry. This is a cocktails and cock talk story. Maybe the last and time we now, do it. time for another stupid story from Cocktails at Cocktalk.com. Yeah, suck my cock. So rumors about Pete Davidson's dong have been swirling around Hollywood for years. Uh, if you're wondering what Kim Kardashian, Kate Beckinsale, Ariana Grande, and now, um, what's her face, Emily Ratajkowski, mm -hmm. have seen in this comedian look further south. Um, Jay Farrow recently spoke to Jess Cagle on Sirius XM, uh, I guess it was the Entertainment Weekly channel, and he revealed that he asked Pete how he gets all these hot women, and Pete, this is Jay Farrow talking, he told me what it was, it's his endowment. He confirmed it. He was like, yeah, bro, it's like nine inches. Then Jay added, I was like, what word? Oh, snap, we twins, that's crazy. <laughs> Sounds like Jay was trying to start to stir up publicity to get his own dick, some famous foof. Although Queerty said, or Cocktails and Cocktalk says, remember, there's a difference between big dick energy and just having a big dick. What's funny about this is Pete Davidson himself has said that he does not have a big dick. He's angry at Ariana Grande for starting that whole big dick energy thing because he says when women are with him now, they're always disappointed. But who knows if he's telling the truth? So um, if Jay Farrow is to be believed, though, Pete Davidson has a, has a nice big one. Meanwhile, uh, this is a very strange story, Ryan. I don't know if you saw this. Mm. A, a Biden administration appointee named Sam Brinton, who is um, gender non-binary, mm -hmm. has been accused of stealing a woman's suitcase from an airport. What? This I, I, I caught notice of this the other day on Twitter because I saw that Matt Damon was trending. And when I clicked on it, there were all these pictures of a non-binary person who was completely bald, wearing bright red lipstick, who looked a lot like Matt Damon. Um, his name is Sam Brinton, and he Samuel Brinton, and he was appointed Deputy Assistant Secretary for Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition earlier this year. He's like a nuclear waste expert. Mm. In October, Sam Samuel, who uses uh, they them their pronouns was charged with stealing a $2,325 Vera Bradley suitcase from Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport on September 16th. Vera Bradley? Girl. I've never heard of Vera Bradley. It's like the um, quilt patch. Uh, it's like very preppy. Anyway. Well, all I can I can't say believe is that much money, to be honest. The only thing worse than stealing a $2,324 suitcase is buying. Sure. A what a ridiculous waste of money. But in an email to the Post, the Department of Energy confirmed that Brinton has been placed on leave. They wouldn't comment on whether uh, Brinton is still getting a government paycheck. Court documents filed in October allege that Brinton took the suitcase from a baggage carousel. Security camera footage reportedly shows Brinton removing the bag's name label before absconding and using the bag for a month. When a police officer called to discuss the incident a month later, Brinton initially denied any wrongdoing. Um, they said, if I had taken the wrong bag, I'm happy to return it, but I don't have any clothes for another individual. That wasn't my clothes when I opened the bag. A few hours later, Brinton amended their statement saying they took the bag by accident due to exhaustion. When they got to their hotel and realized it was not theirs, they worried that someone would think they stole it and disposed of the person's clothes in the drawers of the hotel dresser. That is fishy. 
Brinton was consequently charged with felony theft of movable property without consent. If convicted, they face five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. So, of course, right-wing Twitter and right-wing media have been having a field day with this because Brinton is like the first non-binary person to serve in a position this high in the government and everyone's linking the fact that he's allegedly a thief to the – that they are allegedly a thief to the fact that they're non-binary, which one has nothing to do with the other. And the fact that they do look an awful lot like Matt Damon is not helping the situation. But um, there's there's no word on whether or not they've actually lost their job. I can't imagine that the, the Biden administration can keep them at this point. Yeah. Meanwhile, a South Dakota Republican, this is my favorite headline, South Dakota Republican charged with rape one day after losing the election to his mom. Oh, my God. No way. This is an only in South Dakota story. Mm -hmm. This person's name is Bud Marty May. Uh, He was running for South Dakota legislature, and he was brought to the Pennington County Jail on November 13th on a second-degree rape charge. Uh... He had been arrested and charged with sexual assault days after losing the election to his own mother. Records show that Bud Marty May was brought in on November 13th um, on a charge of second-degree rape by way of force, coercion, or threats, the conviction that would carry a maximum penalty of 50 years imprisonment. The victim told investigators that May physically accosted her in a bar bathroom, telling her that he was six foot eight. White, it is all consensual. That's a quote. Weird. According to law enforcement reports, the woman was found by police officers hiding within the bar with dirt, blood, and an abrasion on her face. Jesus Christ. The blood allegedly came from a pre-existing wound on the suspect's forehead, which is visible by his mugshot. May told the court that the interaction was simply a hug. Uh, as I said, he ran for the South Dakota State House against his mother, Republican State Rep Liz Marty May. <laughs> Everyone's named Marty in this mm. family. In a four-way race for two seats representing the state's 27th district, the young May drew 22% of the vote but finished the race in fourth place. His mother won the re-election. So once again, the family, the, the, the party of family values comes through for us. What about Daisy May? Daisy, Daisy Marty May? Daisy Marty May. Meanwhile, alleged actress Candace Cameron Burr. Ugh. (laughs) Trash. (laughs) She landed herself in some deep shit. So, you know, Hallmark has been having a lot of holiday movies the last few years that involve, that that include LGBTQ characters. Right. And they've been applauded for this. Uh, Well, Candace Cameron Burr spoke with the um, Wall Street Journal and said that she is now leaving Hallmark. She won't be doing any more movies for them, and she's going to something called the Great American Family Network, which will differ from the increasingly inclusive content seen on Hallmark Channel. She, She told the Wall Street Journal, I think the Great American Family will keep traditional marriage at the core. And that immediately sparked outrage among many in Hollywood, including former um cast members of Full House Mm -hmm. and Jojo Siwa. Mm. Remind me who Jojo Siwa is again. She's from Dance Moms. She was one of the little girls. One of the little girls, yeah. And then she went on to just become like a big TikTok influencer. And she's... And she's uh, uh, gay? Lesbian? Like she's, she's on the LGBTQ spectrum. Well, she posted, honestly, I can't believe she would not only create a movie with the intention of excluding LGBTQIA+, but then also talk about it in the press. Um, This is rude and hurtful to the whole community of people. Jodie Sweeten, who was Candace Cameron Burr's former co-star, wrote in response to that, you know I love you. Several other stars reacted to Siwa's post with Dance Moms co-star Maddie Ziegler writing, go off, Jojo. Alyssa Milano wrote, thank you for being such a positive role model for my children. Love Mm -hmm. you so much. Um, And on and on and on. You know, she and her brother, Kirk Cameron, Mm -hmm. are such dicks. Yeah. What has happened to them that they hate gay people so much? Um, Honestly, like the 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 backlash was immense. Good. Um, And then she, of course started complaining that she was being misinterpreted and she was being attacked and she was being bullied. No. Um, She's just being hateful and 
being held accountable. Holly Robinson-Pete, who has also starred, starred in several Hallmark films, noted that Cameron Burr's comments are disappointing but not surprising. Country singer Maren Morris made her feelings known. Uh, fellow Hallmark veteran Hillary Burton Morgan weighed in. I mean, just like she was just canceled by everybody for this. I'm trying to find the part where Candace Cameron Bure is. Uh, Burr responded to several points raised by her critics in a statement shared with people. All of you who know me know beyond question that I have great love and affection for all people. It absolutely breaks my heart that anyone would ever think I intentionally would want to offend and hurt anyone. I am a devoted Christian, which means that I believe that every human being bears the image of God. Because of that, I am called to love all people, and I do. My heart yearns to build bridges and bring people one step closer to God. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, uh, Anyway. Ignorance, ignorance, ignorance. Fuck her. Shut up, cunt! Exactly. And no one's going to watch that network anyway. Um, And finally, before we get to our fabulous guest, if you are blasting Lady Gaga music in your house, then your rats may be dancing. A new study finds that rats can recognize and move to the rhythm of a beat. This is according to a University of Tokyo study uh, that appeared in the journal Science Advances. It was previously thought that only human beings had the ability to like move to music and dance to music. And this is the first study that shows that animals can too. Uh, researchers played Mozart, Lady Gaga's Born This Way, Michael Jackson's Beat It, Queen's Another One Bites the Dust, and Sugar by Maroon 5 for rats and measured their head movements before comparing their results to, to humans who participated in the study. They played the music at four different tempos and found that rats best synchronized their head bops to music in the 120 to 140 beats per minute range, range much like humans. Animals can be trained to move to a beat, but the rats in this study demonstrate an innate ability to groove. Uh, the rats bopped their heads in a more reactive manner than their human counterparts, but their movements also showed signs of being predictive at some points. Um, so the researchers are basically saying that the, what the rats are doing is beat synchronization. It, it can't be characterized as being purely reactive nor only being explained by being startled. Um, to the best of our knowledge, this is the first report on innate beat synchronization in animals that was not achieved through training or musical exposure. Interesting. You've heard of Pizza Rat. <laughs> now, at a club near you, Disco Rat. Now there's Gaga Rat. Scott, can you please help our guest put uh, headphones on so we can start this interview? Adam, this is where I leave you. This is where you leave me? Yeah. Ryan is going to take off for his, uh, for his job. I've come full circle. He's going to go walk the streets yes. of Times Square. I have, I have many blocks to, uh, to peruse. All right. I love it's you. Been a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. It has been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Love you. Love to all, all the ass listeners. And you guys can follow Ryan on social media at Ryan Frosting, like cake frosting. Okay. Our guest today is a legendary performer and a pioneer in the history of Broadway and dance. He was an original member of the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. After appearing with Mr. Ailey and Lena Horne in the original Broadway production of Jamaica in 1957, he went on to dance in a number of other Broadway musicals, including Finian's Rainbow, Golden Boy, Zorba, and Applause. I'm thrilled and honored to welcome Nat Horne to the Adam Sank Show. Hello. Welcome. Nat, we need to get that microphone right up to your mouth. Okay. Yeah, as close as you can get it. Welcome. Hello, how are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very pleased to be here. I hope I can do you justice by being here. You absolutely can. We've never started an interview by asking this question, but may I start by asking how old you are? I'm 92. I will be 93 December the 30th. Wow. So that makes you the oldest guest we've ever had on the show. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm impressed. But also the most accomplished. Well, thank you again. (laughs) So that means you were born in 1929. That is correct. 1929. Richmond, Virginia. How does a black child from Richmond, Virginia, born at that time, make it to Broadway before he's 30? 
tell us about That's that journey. That's amazing. Well, I was born in 1929 in Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. I have uh, four brothers. My father was a Baptist minister, hellfire and damnation. And uh, my mother was a housewife. And I did not find I had any problems problems with uh, race at all because we were a self, uh, how do you say, community family. My father made enough money himself, so we were maybe middle class. I don't know. But I didn't come across any uh, white people until later on, in, probably in high school, it could have happened. In other words, you grew up, you grew up in a segregated part of Richmond. I, yes, it was segregated, yeah. I remember the first time I saw a little white boy his mother was walking him <laughs> across the street, and I said, and I was maybe maybe six or seven, I don't, I don't know, but I was very young. She was holding my hand, and I pointed across. I said, Ma, look, that little boy has no color. <laughs> <laughs> and she smacked my hand down because I was pointing to him, and she said, don't do that. <laughs> and I'll explain to you when you get in the house. But anyway, that was my first uh idea that that was a race problem because my brothers were different complexions we like in most black families you have light and dark yes and always the lightest one is the most favored one in the in the black family during my time i don't know about now but i'm talking about back in the 30s and so uh my brother robinson was the smartest one in the family and he was very he looked he looked like Freddie bartholomew if you know the actor mm -mm. Well, that's a young actor like Shirley Temple was years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a favorite uh, young man and boy in the family. And he got lots of attention because of his lightness and his best hair, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so that was a wonderful time. Uh, he, I looked up to him a lot because he had a lot to do with shaping my life into becoming a dancer. And so how did, how did you first get into dance, and at what age? I first got in, oh my God, that's a story I like to tell because my father had all, all of us around the table after dinner one evening. We all ate, which we don't, people don't do today. The family ate together, and right. uh, he was sitting in a big uh, leather rocking chair, and I was sitting, I had finished dinner, I was sitting on his lap, and he was just talking in general about life and he said uh, baby boy which was my nickname because I was the youngest one of three at that time he was asking my brother what they wanted, wanted to be now my father was a Baptist minister like right. I said hellfire and damnation and everything was off the books you couldn't do anything without the, the church approving of it or religion approving of it he said um Baby boy, what did you want to do? And I looked up at him. I was sitting in his lap. I said, a dancer? He said, what? I said, dancer. He said, what again, louder? I said, dancer. And he stood up. I slid off, and I was on the floor. And he looked down at me. He said, tell me again what you said. I looked up at him on the, on the In other floor. words, he threw you to the ground? He, I slid off his lap. He didn't throw me. He just uh -huh. stood up immediately because he didn't expect He was it. so surprised. Yes, because he wanted all of his sons to be ministers, and none of, none of us became ministers, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> and I w had no intention of going into ministry. And so I slid off his lap onto the floor, and he looked down with his hands on his hip. He said, what did you say? And I told him again, dancer. He said, no. I said, yes. He said, no. I said, yes. Louder. He said, no. Louder. And I said, dancer. And he said, no. I felt like peanut rolling backwards on the floor. I shut up. I didn't say a word. I, I said to myself, dancer. And he said, you cannot serve God and mammon both, meaning the devil. Yes. And I said to myself, not to him, because you could not talk back to your parents in those days. Right. And so I said, in my heart or in my mind, I said, dancer. And it stuck with me from that time on. I must have been around seven years old, I guess. I don't know. So when do you actually start training, and how do you get good enough 
that, I that, that you're time. cast on Broadway. Yeah, I had a hard time training because the mere fact was that I could not uh, study dance in Richmond, Virginia, because the dance school did not allow blacks to study in that school. And there was no, and I wanted to be a ballet dancer. That I knew. I wanted to be a ballet dancer. And I was thinking, how can I get into this? And I had no idea. But uh, as time went ahead, I was playing basketball in the YMCA courtyard next to uh, A.D. Price Funeral Home, which was one of the biggest black funeral homes in Richmond, Virginia at that time. And I was playing basketball, and a lady came down into the court, and she said, any of you boys would like to learn how to lift girls and learn dancing? And, of course, none of the boys wanted to do that. I raised my hand right away. I said, I do. And she said, come with me. So we came into it. Now, the dance class was right next to the A.D. Price funeral home. So I went up the stairs in the YMCA, and there were all these young ladies, in there, and she introduced me to the girls. And from that time on, I began to learn how to lift girls in dance movements, and which I thought was very interesting, and I loved doing it. And I always say that's how I built my muscles, by lifting young ladies. Sure. So that was the beginning of my first How dance. fortuitous that she happened to come down when you were there and say that. I mean, that changed the course of your life. It did. It really did. But I still had a problem with my father because he did not want me to become a dancer. Right. And so, to make a long story short, he said, uh, I couldn't do it. And so, how could I go to rehearsals? Because every Saturday night we had to do uh, Bible study mm -hmm. after dinner. And that was when she would have her rehearsals. And I wanted to be excused from that to go to dance classes. Right. And so my mother was more easygoing. She knew I wanted to do it, and she didn't mind me doing it, but he did not want me to take any dance courses at all. And so I would always want to help my mother wash the dishes after dinner. And I was standing in the kitchen with her, and I can remember this very clearly. I said, you think I could go out right now? She said, you know what your father said? I said, yes, I know what he said, but can I? <laughs> and I was wiping dishes. She said, I don't know what you're going to do. That's the door. <laughs> you just finish these dishes here, and let's see what's going to happen. I finished wiping the dishes, and I went to the kitchen door, and I ran out <laughs> on my way to dance class. On my way to dance class, Ms. Carter, who was the dance teacher at that time, Frances Carter was her name. She would meet us on the corner of First and Lee because the dance class was, was at the Y, which was right next to the film home, A.D. Price's film home, and it was on the top floor. And I'm walking down the street, and I see her, and I wave to her, and she said, Hi, Nat. And I waved back, and I kept walking toward her, and she said, go ahead on upstairs. I'll be up and I'm waiting for the other kids. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that my father was walking behind me. Oh, my gosh. And, he, and she, when I got to the door, she said, oh, hello, Reverend Horn. And I said, oh, my God. I will not be able to go up these steps. And she said, go ahead on up. I'm going to talk to your father. And I did. And that was the beginning of uh, my career as a dancer. And she, she convinced him she to allow this? She was very beautiful, I have to say that. <laughs> I think it was her charm that she had. But she was very beautiful. And uh, I, went, I went ahead upstairs to the uh, rehearsal hall. And she talked to him, and he never came up. So everything, whatever she said to him, he okayed it. What happened next was... She, the recital was going to be at Armstrong High School, which was the high school I went to. Armstrong High School, they had a, a show, and I was to be Beauty and the Beast. I was the prince mm. in Beauty and the Beast. I wasn't the beast, so I didn't have to do a lot of dancing. My major moment was to come on stage in a cloud of smoke that rigged up somehow. And when it smoked out, I was in this wonderful knee-like uh, pants, silver pants, and a jacket. I looked very good. I know I did. I bet. And so 
I, I came, the girl came and she jumped into my arms and I spin her around and my pants split in the back. I said, oh no. Oh, but it was right at the end of the number. So Perfect. It, it, yeah. it didn't matter. I want to skip ahead a little bit, Nat, just because we have limited time and okay. your story is, goes on for a, quite a while since, yes. since you're 93. Um, yeah. Let's start with Jamaica. That was your first Broadway show. Yeah, my first Broadway show was with uh, there were two young ladies who I was working with, like a uh, um, millinery house on Park Avenue, and I liked the job because I had to work. But when I came to New York, I tried to get into dance. It was very difficult, but I couldn't get into any, any ballet classes. So I took this uh, job as a porter at the millinery store. And these young ladies, Barbara Wright and Cleo Quitman, they uh, were coming up to New York. No, yeah, they were going to Club Harlem, I mean, in New Jersey. And they said, they need some dancers in New Jersey. Would you like to ride up with us? I said, I can't leave the job. But you are a good dancer. They seen me in classes. And so I said, yes. And so what happened was, I got into that car and we rode up the highway to New Jersey, to Club Harlem in New Jersey. And there I was put into the show with uh, Lon Fontaine, was the choreographer. Mm. And in that show, I was learned the dances correctly inside of a week time, very slow, very precisely. But when we got on stage, this, the, the tempo was so fast. I said, I can't do this this fast. And they said, don't worry about it. Just do a BS course. And you know what BS means. Bullshit? I, yes, bullshit. <laughs> you can say that. Well, I, 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 did the, I did the BS course. And I danced so fast that I said, I'm not doing any, any of these steps correctly. But anyway, that went ahead. And they liked me because I, I picked up very fast. See, I think I was a natural dancer from birth. I always thought that. So what happened was uh, uh, that was an audition that they were going to. And they said, uh, want to go with us to New York? drive back to New York and I said okay but the choreographer said nobody is to leave here to go to the audition for this show called Jamaica and I'm thinking well, why not and I realized if I got the show he would lose the dance right he, he, he didn't, he didn't want to lose any of you guys lose. but I went ahead and did it anyway with the two young ladies Barbara and Cleo we drove back to New York City I Got to the theater. I came into the theater. <laughs> I came into the theater. I was on stage, and the choreographer, I forget who it was at that time, but he was he showing us the steps, and I was doing them, and I did very good, and he divided us into different groups. I was stage right. The kids on stage left were the best dancers because they'd been on Broadway before. The people on stage right, me, with the other boys, we had not been there, but for some reason they seemed to cater to us. And so anyway, I got the job, and after having received the job, I uh, was leaving the uh, stage, and they said, are you related to Lena Horn? I said, no, I'm not. Right, because you have the same last name. Yes. They assumed, and I assumed I got the job because my name was Horn. Right. But it wasn't true. I got the job on my own merits. I, I was a good dancer. And I Obviously. And, and, Le and Lena Horne was in that show. She was, and I did not know it. I did not know it. And she was in the audience even that particular day. Jamaica had an incredible all-star cast. It was, it was Lena Horne, Alvin Ailey, Ricardo Montalban, yes. Ossie Davis. Yes. I mean, wh what are your memories of doing that show on Broadway? Well, one of the best memories I can tell you that I think was the most important one that I've never forgotten is that we were paid in envelopes, little brown envelopes, and the stage manager gave me my envelope, and my dressing room was on the top floor. So I ran up the stairs in the dressing room, and I sat at my table, I opened it, and I said, ah, wow. And then over the loudspeaker, I heard someone say, Mr. Horn, Miss Horn would like to see you. And I looked down at the numbers on the thing. I said, uh-oh. I closed, ran back downstairs, and she said, darling, I think we have something to exchange. She got my envelope, <laughs> and I got hers. Uh -huh. That's amazing. It looked quite different for the brief moment of being rich yes. <laughs> in my head. Anyway, and that was the beginning of Jamaica. And 
often they always said, are you related? Are you related? And I said, no, we are not related. And even Lena was trying to find out if we were, relate, were, were re related. And so what we used to call each other kissing cousin because <laughs> I couldn't find out and she couldn't find out. So that's where it went off throughout the whole show. We say we were kissing cousin. Not until later on I found out that we are, her people came from the same, uh, from Tennessee. Her grandparents were the horns in Tennessee, and my father came from Tennessee. Oh, who, so maybe you were distant yes, cousins. So we assumed we were kissing cousins. Did you stay in touch with Ms. Horn after Jamaica? No, after I did not see her anymore after that. No, I was on my own and doing my own thing and devolved. Uh, the, how do I say it? I, I didn't found my dear Albert Rears, my best friend and lover. He uh, decided I should have a theater because he knew I liked teaching dance. And he and Frida Scott was his partner at the time. They found this theater on 42nd Street in which it became the Nat Horn Musical Theater. Wow. I never wanted a theater, but he decided I should have a theater because I liked dance so much. And I wanted to have a theater just to teach dancers how to act and sing because... Now was that before or after your work with Alvin Ailey? That was uh, before. No, that was while I was with Alvin Ailey. No, yeah, because they became a little bit jealous of me. I guess I can't say for sure, but that was always this contention that uh, I was taking our students away from Alvin Ailey School to Nat Horn School. How which, long? How long, I wasn't. You, how long were you with Alvin Ailey? Uh, from nineteen, I would say fifty-six. Until 1960, when they went over Europe, when, when his company went to Europe, I didn't want to go because at that time I was not where I wanted to be. And my idea was to be on Broadway and be in the chorus in the back. That was the only dream I had, hmm. Broadway, in the chorus, in the back. And my partner, Albert Reyes, said, that was not a great goal, to be in the chorus in the back line. I said, but that's what I want to do. Listen, it's a wonderful career. I, I, I can think of a lot of worse ways to spend your life <laughs> what, than anyway, dancing on stage. Yeah. That's all I wanted because from childhood, I always wanted to be on Broadway. That I knew. And in the back row, I had no dreams of being up front with a star. I just wanted to be in the back row. But you went but on. I was never in the back row in all the shows that I've done. I was always, you were too good. They wanted to feature you. Well, I guess so. You all can say that. All I know is that I was never in the back row. I was always with the star, either bringing them on stage or working beside them up front. Now, I, I want to ask you about, yeah. uh, because you, you, you became a Broadway dancer in the 1950s. This was a famously repressive decade uh, in American yeah. history for, for gay people, certainly for black people. What's it, what was it like being a gay black man? In the 50s. I never the, thought of myself as being gay. I never thought of that. I knew what my sexual orientation was, I'm sure, but I never thought about it. I never dreamed about it. When I went to an audition being black, many, many times the black kids would say, uh, there's no need, no need of going because they're not going to use us. But I went anyway. I went to any, any audition I could get into, and I did. And I enjoyed going because I liked the experience. And at all of the auditions, I did very well, but they would always say, we are not using your type right now, which meant they weren't using black Black people. But finally, I got, after Jamaica, I got into other shows, and I was always the only one black dancer and one black singer. And most of the shows I was in, that's the way it was. That's how they were choosing the blacks at that time. We came in as... Uh, maybe it was a token, I don't know, but we were, and I was always chosen and got around sometime in the, in the audition period outside, waiting outside the theater. When I would come up in the crowd, they could say, oh, here comes that, he's going to get it, he's going to get it. I said to myself, they don't know that, but I did But you get did. It. <laughs> yes, I mean, I they, did they knew it. something. But I thought in hindsight, maybe it was because of my complexion, I could blend in with the white cast on stage. I didn't stand out as much as a darker black man would. I think it was also because of your skill. I mean, I, clearly, well, if they were always putting you with the star, then, yes. then you must have been pretty great. Well, I I, I end up thinking that because I, I was, and I ha I'm not touting my own horn. <laughs> but So you're but, saying your sexual orientation was not 
really important to it, you? I never thought about it. I never, ever thought about it. But did you have, I mean, surely as a dancer, you must have had other gay friends that you socialized I did. with. No, I, that's one thing. I never went to parties. I, when I was in the show, I was in the show. And when I left the show, my life was separate. Hmm, I did not combine social uh, attitudes with my business career. We have, so that was completely different. We have just about seven minutes left. Yeah. I need to ask you about Golden Boy, 1964 musical you did starring Sammy Davis Jr. And I understand from our, our mutual friend Scott that Sammy could be difficult. Sammy was a wonderful person, but he likes crowds of people around him all the time. And what Sammy said, you have to do. And I was just the opposite of Sammy Davis. I did not at all go to things that he, or go to dinners he invited us to, or luncheon during rehearsals, because I wasn't hungry and I didn't want to be a follower. Right. And he did have followers. Uh, Lester Wilson was a choreographer, and Lola Palana was the two people who followed him around. And they were very close, and they wanted me to be with them whenever they went places with Sammy, but I chose not to do that. I chose to be myself. And how did Sammy feel about that? I don't know. I, I think he understood because once he had invited us to go to a party or some, a dinner or something, or was doing rehearsal, he was taking us to lunch. And he said, okay, we're all going to lunch. And I was sitting on the floor on 57th Street at the rehearsal hall there. And I said, I don't want to go. And a friend of mine said, you got to go. I said, I don't want to go. I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat anything. And on the way out the door, everybody was going to Sammy was the last person. He said, come on, Nat. We're going to for lunch. I said, thanks a lot, but I, I'm not hungry. I don't want But I'm inviting you. <laughs> I said, thanks a lot, Mr. Davis. <laughs> but I'm not hungry. I don't want to go. And he shrugged his shoulders. And he said, okay. And that was the first indication that I began to not to do what he wanted me to do, which you were supposed to do right. all the time. If Sam is safe, then you do it. Right. And I was just the opposite. And I did that several times with him. And one of the major times when he did the Sam and Davis uh, TV show, mm -hmm. they he told us not to come to the audition because he wanted to give other black young men and girls chances, women, to be on stage. And I went to the audition anyway. <laughs> and I got the audition, so I performed with him every Friday night on his Sammy Davis show. And was that, did that piss him off? No, he didn't. I don't know why, because every time he would ask me, I would do just the opposite. And I remember once a Harold person was a good friend of mine, danced in the show in, in uh, Golden Boy. He said, you can't say that to Sammy. I said, well, I'm just saying how I feel. That's the way I feel. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And he said, you're going to get it from Sammy. I said, well, to myself. I didn't say to nobody else. Right. I got the TV, I got the, uh, TV show, and so I must, not, I must be doing something okay. And one time they had a birthday party in the theater for one of the kids, and I formulated the party. I got the kids together doing intermission, and... I did not invite Sam and Davis to the party. And they said, you got, they didn't tell me, but it's known that he had to come to everything that went on in the theater. He must. It was just his nature, and I think he needed people to. Now, we, we have just about a minute left, okay. and I just want to ask you, of all of your memories of performing, what's, what's the number one thing that has most stayed with you as just the, the greatest moment of your life? Oh, gee, was all of my moments in my life are wonderful. I, I've been asked that before. I say I can't pick up one special thing, but I do remember I love being in Zorba. 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 With yeah. Anthony Quinn. With, n no, this is one with uh, Broadway with Herschel Bernardi. I think it was him, mm -hmm. the star of the show. Mm -hmm. I like that show, and I also like uh, Ilya Darling with, with Melina McCurry. Hmm. Those are two best shows I like the best of my career. Why? Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I could listen to you for hours, but unfortunately <laughs> we have a time constraint. Okay. I'm honored to have you on the show. 
Thank you so much, Nat Horn. Thank you for inviting me here. And thank you for listening. We'll be back live again next week with travel writer Ivan Quintanilla from Traveling IQ. Subscribe to this podcast at dnrstudios.com. Don't forget to order your ass merchandise at adamsank.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam Sank and on TikTok at Adam Sank Official. Email me at adam at adamsank.com. Have a great week, bitches. Oh, and don't forget to call 804-TALK-ASS to give us your last words before we sign off. Bye. Thank you.